Galatians 3, looking at verses 1 through 5 this evening. The title of the message, An Introduction to Christian Legalism. An Introduction to Christian Legalism. As we have been working our way toward the halfway point of this book, the epistle of Paul to the churches of Galatia, we've spent the vast majority of our focus upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, how we are reflecting the gospel, how we are living the gospel, and how we are telling the gospel to others. We all recognize that the book is written to Christians, and yet Paul's primary emphasis has been the gospel as it has been understood and then taught by these believers. The understanding within these first two chapters of this epistle is that even if we have received the true gospel, our misunderstanding of that gospel can pose a huge danger to our ability to spread the gospel and is a true threat to the purity of the gospel as it relates to the generations to come. This week, however, we take a more noticeable step into the effects of a false gospel upon the lives of the Christians who have accepted it. As before, we will understand this teaching within the specific context of Christian legalism. However, there are many other false gospels out there. And the warning against Christian legalism, as we'll talk about tonight, is just as strong a warning against Christian license, against any other false gospel as a Christian would accept a true gospel, therefore be born again, but then fall into a false understanding of the gospel that literally and unequivocally will change the way he lives his Christian life. And so we've, we've touched on this briefly in Galatians chapter 2 in particular, the dangers of living out a false gospel and what that can mean. But really now, it's not just the dangers to others. It's not just the dangers to, to our testimony. This is going to be the dangers to our spiritual walk. And we're going to lay the foundation for that today. It's going to remain conceptual this evening, foundational this evening. We need to get an understanding of exactly what it means to be a Christian legalist. And we will do so through these first five verses of Galatians chapter 3. Let's look at those verses together. We'll read all five verses. Please follow along as I read. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Our text opens this evening on the heels of a chapter and a half of Paul giving evidences of his own personal loyalty to the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, Paul then transitions into a, a very stern rebuke of the readers of this epistle in these churches. He calls them foolish. He says, foolish Galatians, a word used only six times in the entire New Testament, in the Greek, with two of these found in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 and verse 3. It's not always used as a deep insult. In fact, sometimes it can be used as a statement of fact. In Luke 24, 25, we see one of these uses. Scriptures say, Then he said unto them, this is Jesus speaking, O fools, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. In this context, Jesus calls two disciples. If you recall, this is after Jesus died and rose again, and there are disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And they are talking about the things that have taken place. And then Jesus joins them, and he begins talking with them, and, and they're not quite sure. And he says to them, you're fools. And you are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then the Scriptures tell us Jesus then expounded to them him in the law and the prophets. And then at the end, of course, they realize it was him. They say, did not our heart burn within us as he spoke, even, even as he spoke with us? And we see here that he calls them fools. He's not trying to insult them. He's simply saying that you have 
become deficient in your understanding of something that you ought to know. We see it spoken in Romans chapter 1, verse 14. Paul speaking here. He says, I'm a debtor. I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. He mentions the Greeks and the barbarians and he links the Greeks with the wise and learned and the barbarians with the unwise or the ignorant. And this would make sense as he's speaking of the Greeks and the barbarians. He's speaking of those who have been highly educated as the Greeks would have been or those who have not been highly educated, both in the Gentile world, both outside of Judaism, and yet you have the learned bunch and you have the unlearned bunch. And just as Paul says, I'm not just going to the Jew, we're going to the Jews and the Gentile, he says, I'm not just going to the smart people. I'm going to the learned and I'm going to the unlearned. Nor am I just going to the unlearned. I'm going to both sets of people. And he calls the unlearned, the unwise, this word, this same Greek word, that is regularly translated fool. It was not intended as a slander, but simply a statement of fact that these were less learned. They were ignorant. They were less full of thoughts, thoughtless, we might say. However, that being said, this word can take on a distinctively negative flavor. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, Scriptures say, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish, there's our word, and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Titus 3.3 says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. In both of these contexts, we see this word foolish tied directly to the sins of the unbelieving world, the sins and the lusts that unbelievers hurdle themselves towards, the destruction and perdition that unbelievers regularly live in. And so with both of these contexts, with both of these verses, we see that this word foolish can, in very deed, mean something that is deeply negative. And that gives you perhaps a little bit more of a flavor as to how this word could be used as we transition back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul is not saying, he, he's not seeking here to be extremely insulting or, or even to, to show a, a larger disproportionate amount of anger. He's simply telling them this is unwise. This is thoughtless. You're not thinking this through. And then he asks these foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth. The word bewitch in the English language um, literally means to fascinate or to charm. Again, in the English, that can mean something positive or negative. I could say that my wife bewitched me one day by her striking good looks, and that would be a fairly positive thing um, to, to say about my wife. She, she might be a little bit flattered by that, and, and that would be perhaps a good thing. But in the Greek, the connotation of this word, the word that's translated bewitch, is definitively negative. It's speaking about fascinating or charming someone into evil or into deception. This would perhaps best be um, illustrated or be manifested in Greek mythology personified in the sirens. If you recall or if you've ever studied Greek mythology, the sirens were a group of beautiful women who would sing and their voice and their beauty would draw men who were sailing in ships toward them and they would all shipwreck on the rocks and then the sirens would actually devour them uh, in Greek mythology. It's not, not a very happy story. But um, the, the sirens were bewitching. They were charming. They were fascinating. They were intriguing. And then as men turned their ships toward them, their men would then be shipwrecked and destroyed. And that is the idea of this word here. Who hath bewitched you? They, th- these false teachers have charmed you, they have fascinated you, and now you're on your way to shipwreck. You are on your way to destruction by the allure of false teaching. Paul would warn the church at Colossae this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Beware, he says, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit 
after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. There is always a threat in every generation, in a multitude of ways of being spoiled, being led astray by philosophies and ideas rooted in this world as opposed to being rooted in Christ. And as we think of this verse, we would be most likely prone to apply this verse to, say, humanism, right? Or to theological liberalism. We would, it would be most prone to take this verse talking about man's philosophy and vain deceit and to apply it to um, the kinds of things that, that are being taught today um, that would draw people toward a humanistic mindset toward atheism, toward agnosticism. But this is just as much speaking when you think about what this verse is saying, the traditions of men, the rudiments of this world, this is just as much warning against legalism as it is against license, against legalism as it would be against liberalism. Legalism is just as much rooted in the traditions of men and the rudiments of this world. It's just as much man-centered as humanism. And so this verse is saying, don't be caught up by anything man-centered. It doesn't matter if it's legalistic or liberal, if it's legalistic or licentious. Don't get caught up into it if it's rooted in man and not after Christ. That's the common thread that connects these vain and dangerous ideas. They are rooted in errors of human nature, of human ideas, of human concepts, rather than being rooted in the unchangeable principles of the Word of God, who is Jesus Christ. This same idea compels Paul's rebuke here in verse 1, that the churches of Galatia have been led astray by a man centered religion which is opposed to the truth of the gospel. It was a Judaistic religion. It was a legalistic religion. And it is a man-centered religion. Recall how Paul described his emotional state in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. We talked about it a couple of months ago now. Saying that he marveled that they were so soon removed from him that had called them unto another gospel. Paul was marveling just at a loss for words, flabbergasted as to how quickly these believers abandoned the tenets of the true gospel in deference to a false gospel. And this is the same attitude that extends itself to chapter 3. He's still just, you can, you can kind of see him, I don't know if he had hair, but pulling his hair out. He's just struggling to try to comprehend how it might be that they could possibly take something as marvelous and as free and as wonderful as the gospel of Jesus Christ and they could place themselves back in the shackles of the very thing that they had been freed from. That they could place themselves back under the, the, the guilt and under the pressure of a law, of a legal system when that is everything that Christ had sought to call them out of. And he's just at a loss for words. There are various possible nuances as we think about this verse. He says here that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. An interesting phrase, is it not? That Jesus Christ had been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Our King James translators chose to reflect the idea that the gospel of Jesus Christ had been so evidently set before the eyes of the people that Jesus had been, as it were, crucified among them, that they had felt the very deepest impact of Christ's crucifixion among them. This is kind of a, a difficult concept to discern exactly what Paul might have been saying here. Another possible nuance if we were just to take that comma that's put after evidently set forth and we were to move that comma from uh, before the word crucified to after the word crucified, we would read it just slightly differently. Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you. This giving the idea that Christ's crucifixion had been evidently set forth among them. You say, well, pastor... What should it be? Well, as I studied the text, 
trying to discern the meaning of the text, I liked a little bit better the idea of moving that comma. We know that our King James Bible itself is a translation of the originals, that the originals have been inspired and preserved, and that we have, and we believe we have a very good and accurate translation of, of the original Greek and Hebrew text today, and we're loyal to the King James Version because it's rooted in the Greek Textus Receptus, which is a a, a Greek text that fell out of favor in the mid-1800s and has not since been used for a viable translation of the Word of God. And so we rest upon a very accurate, well-done translation, not perfect, but very accurate and well-done translation in the King James Version of our Bible. And I was leaning toward the idea of liking to move that comma. But you know, when I went and I looked in the Greek text a little bit closer, the way the King James has it reflects a bit closer what actually the Greek seems to say. That Paul is literally saying that as they received the gospel, as he's trying to describe the vehemence with which they loved and accepted the gospel, they felt the crucifixion of Christ among them. It was real. They recognized what Christ had done for them as he was crucified among them, as they recognized his crucifixion and felt the power of it among them. And so I'm comfortable, certainly, with what is said there. Either way, what we can understand from it is that the gospel had been clearly and evidently laid before them. They had received it at its word. They had received it with all their heart. They had seen the life changes. The Word of God had done its work. The Holy Spirit of God had begun moving and changing and empowering and bringing them into this love for Christ and for the Word of God. But then somehow, in an inexplicable way, Paul says, you were diverted. You were diverted from the truth. And this rebuke is followed by a challenge in verse 2. Paul says this, This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? I would learn only one thing from you, church. I'll ask you only one thing. Seeing you have chosen this false gospel as the basis for your understanding of the faith, I just need to know this. When you received the Spirit, remember that first time? members of the churches of Galatia. Remember the first time you accepted Christ? Do you remember when you heard the Gospel and you said, yes, this is true? Do you remember when the Holy Spirit indwelled you? Do you remember when you were born again? Do you remember that time? He says, when you received the Spirit, was it by the works of the law? Or was it by the hearing of faith? That word hearing there literally meaning the report of faith. A hearing as in a a trial, a hearing. Um, Not necessarily as in simply going into the ear, but the report of faith. Was it the report of of the law, of your works, or was it faith? And of course, Paul knows the answer. It was faith. When they first heard the Gospel, when they were first translated from darkness to light, did that translation come through their efforts or through their faith? It's through their faith. Because we know that without faith, there can be no reception of the Spirit of God. And this leads to another question, naturally, in verse 3. Are ye so foolish? Same word there, foolish. Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Paul decries their foolishness, thinking that if they had begun their spiritual life by receiving the Spirit of God by faith, that their spiritual life would then be perfected by the works of the flesh and by their own personal efforts. Now take careful note of the fact that there was no debate in Paul's mind and presumably in the minds of the believers in Galatia as to whether or not they had begun their faith journey by grace through faith. Paul had decried the false gospel they as believers had accepted. Paul has decried the false gospel that they were demonstrating through their actions. But there is nothing in the text specifically which lends itself to the understanding that Paul was in doubt as to whether or not they had ever truly accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was there when it happened. He knows that they had accepted the gospel. And he truly does believe 
if this verse is any indication that they had accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's not questioning their salvation here. What he's saying is this. The problem is that they, having begun their relationship with God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, initiated when they acknowledged Christ in faith, having no works, having no effort, getting on their knees and saying, as we sometimes sing, just as I am without one plea. Saying, Lord, there is nothing that I have to give to you except myself. Would you please save me? And if that is how you have begun, are you now truly seeking to perfect your salvation through keeping a law? Now again, let's be careful to parse where Paul has been and where he is going with this. The major issue we parked on in the first two chapters was that the church redefined their understanding of the gospel and aligned it with false doctrine. This means that the church would become ineffective in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ both in word and in deed as they now held a false understanding of the requirements of the gospel. This would affect their spiritual destination of those who had already accepted Christ by grace through faith, but would also, without question, affect everyone who would come afterward, their children, the other converts in Galatia. They had accepted Christ, and certainly it will affect the way they live out that salvation, but also Paul needs to get this taken care of because if they've got a false gospel, then very few are going to get saved. (laughs) Very few are going to continue to get saved because they've got nothing left but a false gospel. But just because they had been saved by grace through faith doesn't mean that this false gospel was not affecting them. Beginning in chapter 3, we'll see what this effect is. That they, having begun in the Spirit, now believe and are attempting to be completely sanctified in their own flesh. Whereas they began their Christian life by recognizing that what they needed only God could do for them and entrusting their entire existence, eternity, to God's promises of grace rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ. If I may put it this way, their philosophy has become this. Okay, God, you secured my eternal destiny. I can handle it from here. I can take it from here. You've got eternity, God. I know I can't do that part without you, but I'm pretty sure I can live the way you want me to live just fine on my own. My flesh is capable of doing everything that's required of me in this life, so God, thanks for saving me. I've got it from here. That's kind of the philosophy. And Paul says, wait a minute. If we receive the Spirit of God by faith, and not by our own flesh through the law. What makes us think that now, because we have been given the Spirit of God, we should now live by that same checklist that we've been redeemed from? And the common idea is this. Well, now the Holy, through the Holy Spirit, I have the capacity to keep the law. Whereas before, I didn't have the capacity to keep the law. So now, in order to please God, I should keep the law. That would have been the mindset, and there are many today that still have that mindset. And that sounds great. And indeed, the Holy Spirit has given us the capacity and the desire to serve and obey God, which an unbeliever simply does not have. In fact, we know from Romans chapter 8, verse 8, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. They that are outside of the Spirit of God have no capacity to please God. And by the way, they that are believers living in the flesh, same way. But what does not follow from this in any way is that the capacity that we have been given to please God is the capacity to keep and obey the Mosaic Law. Nowhere in the Bible will you find it said that the purpose of the Holy Spirit indwelling you is to give you the capacity to keep the law and therefore to please God. You don't please God through the law. You please God through Christ. You please God through Christ. We are given the Holy Spirit in dwelling. We then please God, not as we submit to the law, but as we submit to the Spirit of God within us. And we'll come to that when we get to Galatians 5. I just want to jump there tonight, but I can't because we've got some weeks to go still. We'll get there though. And when we get there, we'll see that pleasing God is not intrinsically about what I do. It's about submitting to 
the Spirit who then does through me. And again, and we'll talk about this tonight, the results may not be all that different between the one who's conjuring up the ability in himself to keep a checklist of good things, moralism, and between the one who has submitted himself to the Spirit of God and therefore does good things, righteousness. They may not look that different on the outside. The difference is here. Because one person is conjuring up goodness. The other person is submitted to the Spirit of God and allowing the Spirit of God to live through him. We'll get there. And in verse 3, we actually see quite the opposite in Paul's message. That Paul deeply questions the idea that a believer, having begun his relationship with God through the impartation of the Spirit of God at the moment of belief, can now be perfected in his relationship with God through his own efforts. Do you see the disconnect? But here's the thing. This idea is completely natural. It is completely natural for us, having a true love for God, seeking to find the path of least resistance in an effort to please God, to fall back upon the law. And why? Well, because compared to walking in the Spirit, the law grants some degree of ease. Compared to living moment by moment, day in, day out, crucified to self, Christ walk, a moral checklist is pretty easy. But there was another reason why the law was so alluring to this particular set of believers, those in Galatia. Believers... In Galatia, if you recall, were surrounded by Jews. By keeping the law of Moses, by resubmitting themselves to the standard of the law, they would stop being persecuted. Paul will mention this specifically in Galatians chapter 6. He alludes to it in verse 4 though. No, look at verse 4. Paul says, Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? Since the very initiation of their conversion, the Galatians, like many in the world, had suffered for the cause of Christ. Recall what we learned from, from the book of Acts. Do you remember our book sermon? And the book of Acts? And when we talked about Paul as he went through southern Galatia, and he went to Pisidian Antioch, and then he went to Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, and do you remember in Pisidian Antioch he got kicked out by the Jews? And then he went to Iconium and Lystra and Derby and said, okay, we'll move on. And then what happened? The Jews from Pisidian Antioch chased them down and stirred up the people in Lystra and had Paul stoned and thrown outside of the city and left for dead. Those were Jews that chased him miles just to see him stoned. Imagine what it must have been like for the Jews in these cities or for the Gentiles, for that matter, for those that got saved. Imagine the kind of persecution they must have been under after Paul and Barnabas left. Imagine what it must have been like for them living in these cities of Galatia, in Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, following the ministry of Paul and the, and the apostles. They still had to live there. They still had to deal with the Jews. And Paul asked them, You got saved. Believers, and when you got saved, do you remember how the Jews treated you? And do you think that was because you misunderstood the gospel? If you'd have just figured out the gospel to begin with, that the gospel was really getting circumcised and keeping the law of Moses and the Jews wouldn't be angry with you, is that really what Jesus was teaching would happen? Do you see the disconnect, Galatians? Did you really suffer all of that in vain? All of that that you went through? Perhaps Paul was looking at the scars. <laughs> on his body from when he got stoned and left for dead outside that city. And perhaps he was looking at those and saying, was real, all this really for nothing? Could I have just come in said, hey, Jesus Christ is real, get circumcised and you're in good shape and been fine and the Jews would have been fine and everyone would have been fine and we all just would have been fine? Would that have been okay? Did I really go through all of that for nothing? Did you really go through all of that for nothing? Did we ask you to go through all of that for nothing? And then Paul appends this question with this statement, if it be yet in vain. Paul again highlights the implications of their false gospel. 
By accepting the law, they state that the gospel as spoken by Paul is false. Paul didn't give that gospel. And by accepting the law, they're saying, Paul, your gospel was false. This other gospel is true. Thus, they suffered at the hands of the Jews meaninglessly under false pretenses. Paul says, is that really true? Are you really on the same page with the Jews in Antioch of Pisidia on this one? When they chased me through Galatia, when they stirred up Lystra to stone me, do you really believe that that was for no reason? That at the end of the day, there's really no contention between the claims of the Jews and the claims of Christians as it pertains to the things of Christ and the gospel. And as Paul states this, it becomes evident that there is absolutely no reasonable spiritual explanation for this line of thinking. Paul's exposing the error here. And he finalizes this proof in verse 5 with another question. He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So this is all one charge, one grand question here. He says first, having begun in the Spirit, are you made perfect by the flesh? Then have you really suffered in the name of Christ in vain? Has it really been empty? Finally, what about those who minister among you? Those who minister the Spirit through preaching, are are they really doing it through the law? Is that the power of their preaching, the law? Those who work miracles, signs and wonders among you, are they really doing those signs and wonders through the power of the law? Now, the answer would be evident that a man ministers the Spirit through the Spirit, that a man works the miracles of the Spirit through the Spirit. And when we understand, this is a bit of a side note here, but do you remember the purpose of sign gifts? We've talked about that before. I've traced you through the Scriptures that tell us what the sign gifts were about. Paul tells us that the, the, these gifts were for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. And then we see, as we look at early in the book of Acts, that these sign gifts were intended to reflect to the Jews the nature of the transition between the law and to Christ fulfilling the law, their Messiah fulfilling the law. And we came to the conclusion that the sign gifts were given to the early church specifically as a sign to unbelieving Jews that Christ is the Messiah and that there was going to be a transition in God's economy for this time. And could you imagine the foolishness of these believers thinking that these people that are ministering the sign gifts could be doing so through the very law that the sign gifts were intended to show was fulfilled in Christ? There's this just unreasonable nature to what these believers were thinking here. As these sign gifts functioned in direct opposition to the claims of Judaism as it related to the law of God. Now, beginning in verse 6, Paul is going to provide a fantastic example of faith in one of the most revered personages in Jewish history, the man Abraham. And Paul is going to use Abraham to show the superiority of faith to the law. And we're going to get there next week. But for today, as we've mentioned, this is foundational. Today, we understand the foundational concepts of Christian legalism. And we're going to apply through four points this evening. And if I don't don't get too distracted, I might even get you out of here a little early. Four points this evening as we close. Point number one, legalism defines a mindset, not specific actions. Legalism defines a mindset, not specific actions. We have spoken for weeks now about concepts surrounding legalism, trusting in actions as the basis for our favor with God. And as we now consider Galatians 3, I feel compelled to highlight something very important about the nature of legalism, something which has been lost in much of church culture and much of church teaching. Legalism defines a mindset not a set of actions. It's not about what we do. We can't paint legalism with a broad brush stating that if a person doesn't do certain actions or if a person does do certain actions, he is by default a legalist. It doesn't work that way. And I remind you of a passage in Scripture 
on the weaker brethren found in Romans chapter 14, where in verses 5 through 8 we read this. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth thanks. He that eateth not to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. The principle given here is simply this. We all have chosen within our liberty in Christ to live out our faith in different ways based upon what we understand of the Word of God, the principles of God, the expectations of God, and how we can live those out in our own lives. We have different standards of what we will do and what we won't do. Different standards of what we will wear to church, what we won't wear to church. The list could go on in regard to the different expressions of our faith unto the Lord. And in Christian culture, we are tempted to draw the lines at some set point, particularly the lines of legalism. A family that does this is a legalistic family. A family that does that is a legalistic family. A family that won't do this is a legalistic family. That family that always wears suits and dresses to church, legalist. That family that doesn't own a TV, legalist. That family that won't drink any alcohol, legalist. We are tempted, and, and, and certainly in our circles, things are perhaps a bit different. I, I'm, I'm broadening this to what we might call um, more uh, broad evangelical circles. We are tempted to paint legalism with a broad brush. It, you are legalist if you do or don't do. But Paul teaches us here that the issue of deepest importance is not an issue of what we do, but rather why we do it, the heart with which we do it. If a man chooses to wear a suit to church, and excuse me, and in his mind he is fully persuaded that in doing so he can bring greater honor and glory unto the Lord, that he can fulfill the purpose for which he has come to church in a greater and more focused way because he has uh, directed his heart through his appearance as unto the Lord. Uh, the, the argument that, that is regularly given, and I think there's great validity here, and it's one of the reasons why I do what I do and I ask my children and my wife to do what they do, is the fact that if I were going to stand before the governor or before a, 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 a king or, or before our president or whatever it was, I would certainly want to look well and I would want to, to, um, to show that I had put some thought and some effort into it, into the process of meeting him. And as we come before the Lord and we meet together to encourage one another and we seek to be edified and we, we, we seek to, to lift up the name of Christ together corporately, there's something valid to be said in the idea that a part of me showing the worth to Christ that we are here to do is that I would look nice for Him. And so there's something there and that is wonderful. But if a man chooses not to wear a suit to church and in his mind he is fully persuaded that by doing so he is yet bringing honor and glory to the Lord and his heart is just as aligned and he is seeking to glorify the Lord in the, in the same manner, you know what? That's okay. That's wonderful. So where's the problem? Where does it become legalism or where does it become, that guy's a slob and <laughs> he doesn't care. The problem comes when the man who wears the suit thinks that by doing so he's earning some extra favor with God. The problem comes when he that wears the suit thinks that he is somehow pleasing God more than the other guy because he has a tie on. This is a shadow of legalism. The problem could also come when the man who doesn't wear a suit dismisses the man who does wear a suit as a legalist and judges him simply because of what he is wearing. And when these two come together... You have a man who is judging others for what they don't do, another man who is judging others for what they do do, and you have a church who has become steeped in legalism. And it's not necessarily because of what they are doing or aren't doing, but because of their motives, their intent, and how they're reflecting those motives and intent to others. But if every man lives out his days 
tirelessly committed to carefully applying the commands and the principles of the Word of God to his life in a way that honors the Lord, then while you might still have people with very strict standards, uh, there will be no threat of legalism in the midst. Because I'm not doing what I'm doing to impress anyone, to make myself feel good. I'm doing what I'm doing because before God, I am confident that this is the best way I can serve Him. And that is where our hearts need to be. Legalism defines a mindset, not specific actions. The standard of legalism is not drawn upon the table of what you are doing, but why you are doing it. How you perceive your actions are benefiting you spiritually. How you perceive your actions are touching your family, yourself, and the others that are around you. Point number two. The mindset of legalism touches more than salvation. There's another misunderstanding about legalism that floats around, perhaps even a little bit more so in our circles, which states that legalism is a term only used within the context of, of what we are trusting for our salvation. In other words, and I've heard this set taught before, that legalism only deals with whether or not you are trusting in Christ for salvation. It has nothing to do with how you live your Christian life. The legalist is a person who believes that something other than faith is required for eternal salvation. And make no mistake, that would be legalism without question, but legalism doesn't end there. And we know that from Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. We are looking at a group of people who began in the Spirit, but are now seeking to perfect their walk with the Lord by submitting themselves to the law, by living under a strict code, by saying, if I don't do this, then I'm not right with God. If I don't get circumcised, I'm not right with God. If I don't follow this set of dietary standards, I'm not right with God. Everything that Christ had fulfilled, they're seeking to be placed back under. And this point is the point, if we could say that this evening. That as we consider the dangers of legalism, we must consider them within two distinct but interrelated concepts. Certainly, we consider legalism within the context of salvation and warn against those who would espouse some form of works salvation. But we must also recognize that the Christian one truly born again by placing their full faith and trust in the finished work of Christ alone for salvation can also then fall into legalistic tendencies in regard to how you live your Christian life. You can begin in the Spirit, but then seek to be made perfect by the flesh. The Christian can trust God fully for salvation, but think that he must earn God's favor through a particular set of actions. And parents, take note... You can have it right. You can be choosing the standards that you do for all the right reasons, but if you don't reflect the reasoning to your children, your children might draw the line of sin on the line of your standard. They might fall into legalism because they haven't been taught that what you do is an outworking of your understanding of Christ, not the demand of Christ itself. The Christian can also trust God fully for salvation, but then become confused and change his understanding of the gospel to include legalistic elements. That was what the first two chapters covered. And this is the danger which we consider this evening and against which we must surely be guarded. For some, this point seems obvious. Of course, Christians can be legalists. But the point must be established and it must be understood for the context of the next several chapters depends upon us recognizing this. Point number three this evening. The mindset of legalism denies sound doctrine. The mindset of legalism denies sound doctrine. When we boil down that which legalism represents, it represents self-righteousness. There can be no legalism where there is not a misunderstanding or a misapplication of the doctrine of grace. Paul calls the Galatian believers foolish, thoughtless, for thinking that their efforts could somehow dictate their position before God. Paul calls the Galatian believers bewitched, charmed into deception and evil by a fairy tale line of thinking which operated in contrast to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sound doctrine states 
that our infinite and sovereign God has chosen to give salvation to whosoever will. And upon receiving this gift, He then grants those who receive it, those who believe it, the privileges of election, namely, the Holy Spirit indwelling and enabling for the direct purpose of representing Christ to the unbelieving world. Essential to God's plan is that the believer be fully yielded to the ministry of the Holy Spirit within them. The believer does not conjure up goodness for himself, conjure up obedience for himself, conjure up virtue, conjure up righteousness. The life of the believer is not learning how to behave. The life of the believer is about learning how to love God and submit to His Spirit, from which then will flow goodness and obedience and virtue and righteousness. Anyone can learn to be a Christian, right? I mean, how many Mormons do you know that are better Christians than we are? In that, in that, that form of Christian. Really. They don't have a gospel. They don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling. But boy, are they good people. Boy, are they good people. And yet, for all of that, it's everything about what they have conjured up in themselves to produce. And we can fall into the trap of that too. This is what a Christian should be. I can do that, right? I can do that. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to make that happen. Instead of what a Christian should be is submitted to the Spirit of God and then watch as God changes you. Again, the end result, very difficult to discern. The heart motive, entirely opposite poles. This is the difference between a life of righteousness and a life of morality. This is the difference between a life lived in the Spirit and a life lived in the flesh. This is the difference between embracing the sound doctrine of holiness or the false doctrine of legalism. And when we live out legalism, to whatever extent we do, what we are living out is sound doctrine. It's the context of false doctrine. Excuse me, false doctrine. Fourth and finally this evening. The mindset of legalism likely touches us all. I desired to frame this final point differently, but I didn't feel like I could do so without having the statement lose its intended effect. I fear that this statement might discourage you, and I don't want to do that. But hear me out here. Living a life of grace, one in which you reject the license of worldliness and the allure of legalistic self-righteousness is a daily effort. And I mean this literally. There's not a day that goes by where you do not have to wake up and come into conflict with the temptation of either yielding to license or seeking to serve God in the flesh. To live a life of grace demands the Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 type of living. Do you remember what that verse said? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To, <clears throat> to die daily to self, whether this self be the allurement to sin or whether this self be the allure of self-righteous moralism, is the necessity that rests upon every believer. And this cannot be a passive endeavor. You can't just bake this in. It's not going to be automatic. This is something that you have to choose to do. We all know how easy it is to fall into religious rituals and routines. In fact, we guard against this at Legacy Baptist Church, don't we? You come to church next week and the songs are not going to be in the same place. And the scripture reading is not going to be in the same place. You're not going to stand and sit. You're not going to be able to memorize that. I remember growing up, I could literally be half asleep and still know when I was going to stand and sit because we did the same thing every week. And it's not wrong. But what it does do is it brings you to a place where you get just a little bit apathetic. You, you, you learn to be able to just do it instead of doing it. And so that's one of the little nuances we do here. We just change things up every week. Just a little bit. Because it's so easy to fall into rituals, into routines, to begin to trust that we are right with God simply because we've accomplished our spiritually certified checklist for that day. 
for every day that we wake up and yearn for the knowledge of God and thirst for His presence through a time in the Bible reading and prayer. We face another day where we read our Bible simply because if we didn't, we would feel like we weren't right with God. And so since we did feel... We, we, you know, we, we did what we did so that we could accomplish our tasks so that we can feel okay about our day. For every day that we wake up ready and eager to reflect Christ to a lost and dying world, being an example of the believer and showing Christ in word and in deed, we face another day where we do Christian things because it makes us feel like we're better than other people. And it brings us some measure of glory or self-satisfaction or judgmental contentment. And in this way, we must understand that legalism can touch us all. There's not a man or a woman among us who does not, at least from time to time, struggle with the motivations for doing what we do. And granted, there are other concepts here, aren't there? Children, it's not legalistic for you to do what your parents tell you, right? (laughs) You do what you're told. That's your job. That's what God has given to you. It's not your job to discern if something is properly motivated or not. Your motivation is... Honor thy father and thy mother. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. That's your motivation. That's your job. So there are other considerations here, but but stay with me on this. There's not a child in this room who is not guilty of serving the Lord indeed while their hearts have been far from Him. There's not one among us who is not tempted just to go through the motions of the Christian life so that people will think we are something that we are not or not something that we are, when in fact we are not motivated by the grace of God. We are not even motivated by our true love for Him, but by some temporal or fleshly motive. And I do not make this point so that we will leave here discouraged, thinking that no one can win, so we might as well just give up. I say this only so that none of us would fool ourselves into thinking that we do not need these cautions. With that said, may I just leave you with this reminder as we close. Victory is ours already. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior by putting your full faith and trust in the reality that Jesus died for our sins, He was buried and He rose again the third day, if you have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit and you are born again, victory is yours. One day you will leave this body you will leave this flesh of sin and you will find a perfect body within which there are no temptations to do anything in the flesh. Victory is yours. And like as Paul said in Galatians 2.20, victory can be tasted every day of your life as you are crucified with Christ, as you die daily, death to self, alive unto God, yielded and submissive, not to a set of rules, not to a code of conduct, not to the expectations of your church, not to the expectations of your pastor, but as you live yielded to the teaching and the dictates of the Holy Spirit as reflected in the Word of God. So while the mindset of legalism can likely touch us all, that touch need not influence us as we walk in the Spirit of God, daily determining to live our lives confidently in the grace within which we stand. May God help us to do that this evening as we seek the Lord's best and the direction that He would have for each of our lives and families. Let's pray together.